What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Lights Out. But we are here in the flesh today. The Warrens with another Warren Files for you. We're going to be telling you the story about the Bridgeport Poltergeist. Sometimes we deal with the paranormal. Beginning in 1971, Jerry would wake up in the middle of the night to a mysterious pounding noise on the side of the house. Coincidentally, it had started around Halloween. Happy Halloween, everybody. I need you to let me know that you believe in me. (laughs) Does that mean we potentially have 10,000 Warren file episodes ahead of us? Do I look like I'm lying to you? This is all real. But oh, no, 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 no. It was only the beginning. But they believed that what they were looking at was a manifestation of a demon. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Lights Out. I'm your host today, Ed Warren, joined by my supreme wife, Lorraine. What a compliment. I'll take that compliment, Ed. It's nice to be here. You're looking beautiful, honey. Thank you. You're looking a bit dry. (laughs) You know, it's been a dry summer, and... I don't know what to tell you. I don't like sunscreen. <laughs> so, you know, I just wither away. But then we're also joined here by this unknown creature that was once a producer. Hello there. Hello there, everybody. How's it going? What do we even call you? <laughs> you can call me whatever you want. I'm anything and everything. This is our poltergeist for today. We don't know what he is, or if it's a he or a she. It's just there. We can we can key in Tony Sparrow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It could be Tony. It could be be a ghost. Who knows? I'm Tony. I'm a ghost. I'm whatever I want to be. You probably see a lot of shape shifting going over there throughout this episode. But we are here in the flesh today. The Warrens with another Warren files for you. Probably one of our most controversial to date. We're going to be telling you the story about the Bridgeport Poltergeist, the entity on 966 Lindley Street. This is going all the way back to the 1970s, back in our glory days. And boy, was this a wild case, honey. I remember it well, even in my old years. I don't know why I'm doing a southern accent here. <laughs> we're the southern ones, all right? You know, we're we're we've been through a few things. We've might have returned from the grave if you look at our look at the way that we look. I mean, you're looking a little uh, wrinkly over there. Yeah, I've been decaying for quite some <laughs> time. But you know, a lot of people like to think that we're just a bunch of frauds that we're just in it for the money. Does it look like we have money? No. Absolutely not. These are cheap 
sunglasses, if you ask me. I mean, look, just look at my eyes. Look at my eyes. Do I look like a fraud to you? Do I look like I'm lying to you? This is all real. Everything we experience together is real. Even if we don't have the evidence. It's Even real. if the evidence is locked away in our attic somewhere, it's still real. It's real. You must believe. You must believe. Put these back on because I feel safer with them on. But Bridgeport, man, Bridgeport was just a doozy. Absolute doozy. There was tons of people that came out to see this. We got firefighters. We got police officers. This was an absolutely insane case that we covered. But the land of Bridgeport was once occupied by the Pequannock Native Americans. And the first English settlement of the area dates back to around 1665. The official city of Bridgeport was later incorporated in 1836, and through the centuries, Bridgeport had been a quiet city built upon the success of Black Rock Harbor. But by the 1970s, a highly detailed paranormal investigation disrupted the quiet city with nearly 260 reported incidents at a small house on Lindley Street. The house was owned by Gerard, who went by Jerry, and his wife, Laura Gooden. Jerry had lived in Bridgeport his whole life. He was a World War II veteran, served in the Air Force, and worked as a factory worker and handyman. His friends, family, and coworkers thought of him as a no-nonsense kind of guy. As for Laura, she was a full-blooded Indigenous American. She had grown up in an isolated home, not near many other children, so she had just a few friends growing up. When she met Jerry, they had an immediate connection, and they married in the 1960s. Jerry was a strict Catholic, so they married in the church. The right way to be. After the wedding and honeymoon, they bought a modest two-bedroom, one-bath, 783-square-foot house at 966. Lindley Street in Bridgeport, hoping to settle down and pursue the American dream of a family and a white picket fence. Their first son, Jerry Jr., was born on Halloween 1961. Which, by the way, happy Halloween, everybody. It's a devil's holiday, but we like it that way. We still like to have fun over here. Still like to dress up. Yeah. Even though sometimes we deal with the paranormal. I'm still doing Southern accents. <laughs> I can't break it. It's okay, honey. We spend a lot of time down in the South. That's recently. true. That's true. You know, six feet under the ground. Even though we... <clears throat> I don't think I'll ever find the Lorraine voice, but... She's she's kind of got this soft voice. <clears throat> Not Southern. <laughs> Not Southern. We're going we're gonna to hone in here and... Halloween's a great holiday. It is. It, it doesn't have to be about the devil. It can just be about dressing up and being with your family. Absolutely. Carving pumpkins, handing out candy to the kids. That's what it's all about. God bless. 
<laughs> oh man, this is gonna be funny. <laughs> so little Jerry Jr., he seemed like a perfectly healthy boy at first. But as time passed on, one of their neighbors pointed out that the boy's head always seemed to hang down. Laura didn't see it as a problem at first until the neighbors started pointing it out. After taking Jerry Jr. to the doctor, they confirmed it was nothing to worry about. But just six months later, little Jerry Jr. was diagnosed with cerebral palsy. Unfortunately, this is a group of conditions that affect movement and posture. Uh, it's caused by damage that occurs to the developing brain, most often before birth. Symptoms appear during infancy or preschool years. The children's arms, legs, and torso might appear floppy, and their posture might be irregular. Unfortunately, there is no cure, but it can be treated. And uh, unfortunately, if the case is severe enough, um, there's about a 40% mortality rate uh, before the age of 20. A lot of people do live to see beyond 20, but in some severe cases like Jerry Jr.'s, um, it was pretty rough. You don't die from cerebral palsy, but it's typically an underlying condition which uh, causes complications. Very unfortunate for little Jerry Jr. Well, that was very hard to speak through this rubber mask, I will say. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Apologies in advance if we sound a little <laughs> off today. We're wearing heavy-duty latex masks that are supposedly movie quality, although I'm questioning that quite a bit because I feel like my face is being pulled inwards. I mean, you, you look great. Thank you. Thank yeah. You. These are supposed to be the lip-moving masks, but it is definitely prohibiting the normal mouth movements a little bit. So just bear with us, please. Maybe have a drink <laughs> or two before you, you continue on with this one because you're going to need it. You know, I got some of my holy water today. Oh, uh, wow. Are you going to drink holy water? Well, I got to bless up somehow. <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah. Oh. That's some... uh some real Ooh, holy water. That is hot. <laughs> so the Goodens ended up spending much of their money to help Jerry's condition. They bought him leg braces and even a special chair. But unfortunately, he passed at the age of six years old in 1967. Just three days before his seventh birthday. And to add to the trauma... Laura had to undergo a hysterectomy because of a problematic tumor only one day after burying her son. And now she can no longer have biological children. In grief, the couple kept a shrine for their son in their living room for six months after his death. Jerry and Laura wanted another child more than anything. So after grieving, they turned to adoption. That's when they soon met four-and-a-half-year-old Marcia, who went by Marcy from Canada. She was a full-blooded Seneca Native American girl. She was the youngest of nine and was the only one of her siblings put up for adoption. Which is just cruel, in my opinion. Yeah. It's believed her mother was a teenager and couldn't support her at the time. Other reports claim that strange activity surrounded her and she was often tied up in a chair from a young age, which who knows what that's all about. Once the Goodens completed the adoption process, they brought Marcy back to their home in 1968. 
Jerry and Laura quickly fell in love with their new daughter, and life went on as usual, except for a few objects that occasionally disappeared and then reappeared in different rooms when they weren't looking. They figured it was just their curious new daughter moving things around. Soon the neighbors noticed the Goodens were extremely protective over Marcy, but they knew the Goodens had recently lost their son, so they were being overprotective of their new daughter. Laura would escort Marcy to and from private school, hand in hand, and Laura wouldn't allow her daughter to play with any of the other children, as she couldn't risk any danger. Even during recess, Laura would show up to the school and walk her around the schoolyard, making sure she couldn't play games with the other children. I think that's taken it a little too far. Which this took a toll on Marcy. And sadly, she grew up without any friends. But Laura had grown up without any friends too. And she told Marcy she didn't need them. Laura had a constant paranoia that if Marcy was ever out of her sight, she would somehow die. So over the years, Laura continued to be extremely overbearing. And this made Marcy resent her mother. People who met Marcy in her youth described her as an intelligent child, but incredibly lonely, which caused her deep sadness. Outside of relationship problems, the Goodens also fell on hard times. And Jerry's hours were cut back at work, which took a hit on the family's income. They had to pull Marcy out of St. Patrick's private school and send her to public school. Here, she was bullied by the other students, mostly for her Seneca heritage. The bullying even escalated to physical beatings by a group of boys. One of the boys kicked her so hard that Marcy had to go to the hospital and ended up in a body brace. This is just horrible. After this, the Goodens pulled Marcy out of school entirely and they thought the best way forward was to homeschool her. She rarely made friends at school, but now with homeschooling, as you can imagine, there was just no chance to ever make friends, which made her resent her parents even more. Marcy never disobeyed her parents. She usually did as she was told, but she bottled up her resentment and anger for years. And as Marcia grew older, she rarely got along with her mother. It was around this time that the Goodens began experiencing strange paranormal events in the home. Around 1968 or 69, the Goodens' family friends and neighbors Harold and Mary Hoffman would come over quite often to 966 Lindley Street. Game nights were common and they usually brought along their daughter, Rosemary, who was around Marcy's age. Since Marcy was never properly socialized, she didn't know how to interact with Rosemarie. So they'd sit on opposite ends of the living room couch in just complete awkward silence. One day, Rosemarie tried to strike up a conversation, but Marcy wouldn't respond. She desperately wanted a friend, but couldn't think of anything to say. Moments later, something shook the couch beneath them. It was a subtle shake but strange enough to get a rise out of Rosemarie. When she asked what was causing the shaking, she thought it might have been Marcy pranking her. But Marcy just stared out the window in silence and ignored her. The couch shook again with more force this time. And both the girls looked at each other in a panic as the couch 
slowly lifted six inches off the ground. That is crazy to think about. Imagine sitting on the couch and all of a sudden having it shake and then levitate off the ground. What are you thinking? What's going through your head? Especially when you're that young, would you even consider like anything but a ghost? I feel like when we were, I don't know, at least when I was a little kid, I was more prone to believing that so many more things were ghosts. I would have just immediately been like, ghost. Ghost. I don't know what other options there really are. Yeah, unless if there's two grown men on either side of the couch lifting it up. Makes no sense. So after levitating off the ground for a second or two, it slammed back down. The sound of the slam and the girl shrieking made the adults rush to the living room. Everything looked normal when they got there, so they shrugged it off. At the time, no one understood what horrors were about to infest the good and home. But the silver lining was that Marcy now had a friend. Their strange experience with the paranormal in the living room brought Marcy and Rosemarie closer and Rosemary became the only person Marcy ever considered as a friend. The paranormal events only got more intense as time went on. One afternoon, the Hoffmans came over to the house again. Rosemary went to find Marcy in her room. When she opened the door, she saw Marcy sitting with her legs crossed and rocking back and forth. And to her, it looked like she was in a trance. As Rosemary got closer, she could hear Marcy whispering in an unknown language. After a moment, Marcy snapped out of the trance. She explained that she had been speaking with her grandfather, who was supposedly a respected chief at her old reservation. He was angry that the Goodens had taken her away from her Seneca people. But several years passed without any more incidents. But Marcy's resentment grew. Beginning in 1971, Jerry would wake up in the middle of the night to a mysterious pounding noise on the side of the house. It sounded like someone banging on a door or the walls. Maybe someone was throwing different sized rocks at the house. Or maybe it was just noise from the construction at the nearby St. Vincent's Hospital about a block away. But he couldn't exactly identify where the noises were coming from. And if it was construction... Why were they working in the middle of the night? It always began with a tapping noise that then escalated into an awful banging. Plus, Jerry noticed a pattern of knocks sometimes. Coincidentally, it had started around Halloween, and so we thought maybe that has something to do with it. Eventually, he talked to his neighbor, John Hallsworth, about the noise. He was a police officer with the Bridgeport Police Department. He told Jerry to make a tape recording of the noises so that they could try and identify them. So one night around 3 a.m., Jerry turned on his tape recorder. When the pounding began, he walked from room to room recording the noise. When he played it back for the police department, they listened to the sounds. The pounding was almost rhythmic at times, but nobody could identify what or where it was. Even some city engineers listened, but he couldn't figure it out. and They had no idea what Jerry was experiencing. The recordings apparently also picked up the sound of furniture moving through the house, and at some point the noise in the house finally stopped. Jerry realized that around the same time, one of the neighbors had recently moved out of the neighborhood, so he thought maybe they were the ones responsible for the noises. But soon the banging returned, and it continued on and off into 1974. 
And this was the year more strange things began happening in the Gooden family home. One fall evening, the Goodens were relaxing in their living room when suddenly Laura shot up from the couch and pointed at the window. And that's when both of them saw what looked like a disembodied human hand pressed against the glass. They went to inspect from the outside, but of course no one was there. Another night, three distinct knocks came at the front door. Laura went to answer it, but again, no one was there. As she glanced down at the small landing by the door, she noticed the silhouettes of two wet footprints, like someone had been standing there barefoot and sopping wet, even though it was a dry fall night. On November 21st, 1974, the neighbors Jamie and Janet Hallsworth, John's wife and 14-year-old daughter, were over at the Goodens. They were eating dinner in the dining room when they all heard the sound of shattering glass coming from the Goodens' bedroom. When they went to check, they saw one of the windows had been smashed, but they noticed that the inside glass pane was shattered. The storm window on the outside was still intact, meaning that whatever broke the window had come from inside. The next day, the Giddens planned a trip to see Jerry's cousin. That night, they all relaxed in the living room watching TV, and again, a strange noise came from the couple's bedroom. When they checked it out, they noticed that one of the window shades had been rolled up on its own, and one of the curtains had been removed from the curtain rod. Laura returned everything to its proper place, but she watched in confusion as the curtain was again thrown to the ground and the blinds snapped back up. Laura left everything where it was, hoping that ignoring it would make the problem somehow go away. But when the family settled down in the living room again, the pounding noises started up. The noises traveled through the house like they were coming from inside the walls, and as the pounding reached a deafening volume, it suddenly stopped. The next day, they all figured it was a good idea to get out of the house for a while because something was up. So they went on a day trip out to Jerry's cousin's place and got back around 4.30 in the afternoon. But when they returned, they noticed that Marcy's bedroom TV, which had once been resting on a shelf, was now unplugged and face down in the center of her bed. Sorry, let me get my reading spectacles. <clears throat> so you can... <clears throat> So, Ed, you could probably guess what we're dealing with now, potentially. It's a a good old-fashioned poltergeist. We've covered them before plenty of times. Here's a little refresher on it. The word comes from the German words poltern, meaning to make noise or to rumble, and geist means ghost or spirit. Some of the earliest accounts date back way back to ancient Rome. They're believed to be restless spirits attempting to communicate through noises and moving objects, and they're typically not tied to disembodied voices or apparitions. Sometimes they're playful, like flickering lights, tapping noises. Other times they're a bit more malicious, like setting fires or hurling massive objects with incredible force. Uh, Some have described it as active kinetic energy that causes physical disturbances. Ghosts are generally unable to break through the physical realm, so the ability to do this makes poltergeists unique. Others explain it as a mass form of energy that a living person is controlling unknowingly, which we'll see is one of the theories uh, in this case. They can follow energy or a person around rather than occupying a particular space like a ghost does, and the reason they're known to be linked with teenagers because of the extra strong emotions and turmoil that comes with adolescence and puberty. 
And we'll see. I think Marcy is generally around 10 years old when all this is happening. I think it starts when maybe she's about eight, but several years pass. And at least Lorraine Warren, I remember, she claimed that she believed that Marcy was in puberty by this time. A lot of people do connect Poltergeist's case with uh, puberty teenagers. Um, yeah, I kind of remember. Yeah. <laughs> Them hormones are flowing. The hormones so, are flowing. Kind of reminds me of the Enfield case. Yes, exactly. Janet. Mm-hmm. It's kind of similar type of type of vibe going on here. Um, with all that said, we'll see. There are some different theories surrounding the case, uh, but by popular opinion, this is mostly a poltergeist case, uh, possibly a demon. Some think it might be an inter- interdimensional being some think it has something to do with the multiverse we'll get into that Ooh, a little bit multiverse. later yeah trippy but after seeing the tv on the center of marcy's bed jerry walked into the kitchen where things got even stranger dishes floated out of the kitchen sink and smashed themselves into the walls and floor one by one then a set of kitchen knives slipped out of the knife block on their own and aimed their blades straight at jerry The knives launched towards him like spears, but he was able to duck down towards the floor. They flew above his head and sucked themselves in the kitchen door behind him. Laura then entered the kitchen after hearing the commotion. The kitchen settled down for a moment, and they thought it was all over. They tried to go about their day like nothing had happened, and Laura brought several bags of groceries in and set them on the kitchen table to unpack. Then the kitchen table elevated into the air like it was being lifted by invisible hands flipped over. All the fresh food crashed into the kitchen wall. Laura watched as the refrigerator began hovering a foot off the floor and the heavy tube TV near the kitchen sink tilted on its edge and then crashed down on Laura's bare foot. Later that night they were all getting ready for bed and Marcy went in to use the bathroom when Jerry and Laura heard some commotion. They found Marcy covering her head with her hands and several bathroom items were flying in the air above her at high speeds. But luckily, things settled down by 3 a.m. that night. They prayed that the strange activities were finally over and went to bed. But oh, no, 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 no. It was only the beginning. By the next morning, Jerry went into the kitchen to make breakfast when he noticed the kitchen table had once again flipped over on its side. (gasps) And the refrigerator had moved several feet. No. When he went to tell his wife that the paranormal activity wasn't over the heavy crucifix on the wall popped off the nail and crashed to the floor. Now that's scary. Before they could even react, an ear-shattering bang came from Marcy's bedroom. Her bedroom dresser had tipped forward and fell to the floor. Luckily, Marcy was still in bed. If she was up near the dresser, though, it would have crushed her. Next, the family heard noises coming from the living room and their recliners were moving and opening on their own. The TV was off, but it sounded like the sound of a doorbell was coming from inside of it. And it got to the point where the family's mental state quickly fell apart. And they became desperate for a solution. So they contacted their neighbors, Harold and Mary Hoffman, and asked if they would come over. The Goodens waited outside for the Hoffmans to arrive. And they saw Officer John Halsworth's daughter, Janet, walking by. And they asked if she would go and get her father, as it was an emergency. When John got there, he immediately witnessed the moving furniture inside the house and called for backup. An official police investigation finally began. Two more officers named Joseph Tomek 
and Carl Leonzi showed up at the house. And the family explained what had been going on. In the past 24 hours, they had witnessed almost every single piece of furniture moving inside the house. Joseph stepped inside to inspect, and at first, he thought that the Goodens were victims of a home robbery since the place looked ransacked. Most of the furniture was in disarray, and he picked up one of the TVs and placed it back on the nearby dresser. Within seconds, the TV rose up in the air and swung back and forth. At first, the officer thought it might have been an illusion, maybe attached to strings or something. But as he moved his hands around the TV, there was nothing attached. Several more objects in the house began moving on their own, and the officers called in for backup. When Officer Leroy Lawson arrived, he watched as a crucifix on the wall swung back and forth before lifting itself off of a nail and throwing itself at his chest. Leroy then left the house immediately and refused to return. To get more eyes on the situation, officers called in a firefighter unit plus their assistant chiefs to check out the house. One of the firefighters, Jack Messina, witnessed a TV rising up off the dresser and falling to the floor. Another firefighter, Deputy Chief of Operations, Frederick Zverlein, contacted a local priest and was recorded saying, quote, Hi, Father Doyle. I am not drunk, but this is what is happening here. You know what? I appreciate the honesty because yeah. I think if I got a phone call about this activity, I'd probably be asking the same questions. I love how he prefaces that. He's like, <laughs> I know it probably sounds like what I'm about to say sounds like I'm going to be inebriated, but I promise you I'm not. When the priest arrived, he first saw Lord Gooden going up to everyone in the house and saying, quote, evil spirits are trying to kill us. After Father Doyle investigated the house, he also sensed there was an evil spirit at play, so he prepared to perform a blessing on the property. He arranged rosary beads, a vial of the finest holy water, and a pocket Bible in front of him. As he began, he reached for the holy water, but the vial tipped over before he could grasp it. He returned it upright, but again it fell over on its own. After that, Father Doyle contacted a fellow priest for assistance. A paramedic also showed up to treat Laura's foot, which had been crushed by the kitchen TV the day before, and Jerry's brother Edmund also showed up for support. It didn't take long for neighbors to notice the commotion of guests, officers, priests, and firefighters at the house, and people began gathering outside. Friends and family also stopped by the house offering food and gifts. It seemed like they had all shown up to support the family, but many of them just wanted to gawk and look inside their haunted house. I love that. Here's a raspberry pie. Yeah. And also, I just kind of <laughs> wanted to see things moving and experience this myself. It's like ticket for admission to the haunted house. <laughs> yeah. Bring us some food or supplies and have a look inside yourself. I mean, at this point, there's a lot of people witnessing this poltergeist activity or paranormal activity. Yeah pretty wild and we'll see the crowds will start to amass in uh pretty high numbers here some of the neighbors like mary pascarella were able to sneak into the house mary was a self-proclaimed psychic medium and a member of the psychic research center after listening to the rumors of what was going on she wanted to test her theory that a child can act as an unconscious agent for a poltergeist which we mentioned earlier she believed that Marcy was at the center of what was going on. As she observed what was going on inside the house, she didn't experience anything herself, but she had another idea in mind. She just so happened to be close friends with us. 
and yeah. Lorraine Warren. Shout out. <laughs> and they were the first people she thought of after leaving the house on Lindley Street. Now, we've covered probably all of the biggest Warren cases here on Lights Out. This, this might be one of, the, one of the last huge ones that we have yet to cover. Um, but if you're not familiar with them, Ed, my husband, who's a famous demonologist, and Lorraine, myself, was a clairvoyant and a medium. They were husband and wife who worked together for about 50 years. And over their career, they claimed to have investigated over 10,000 cases. Can you believe that? 10,000 10, cases? Man. I mean, my God, how did we have time for anything else? Right? Does that mean we potentially have 10,000 Warren file episodes ahead of us? I guess. We got to <laughs> locate these lost archives. Yeah, seriously. We got a lot more to go. Yeah. So their one thing was that they never charged for their investigations. Instead. Say that again. Yes. They never charged for any of their investigations. As far as we know. True. Instead, they made money mostly by giving lectures and licensing their stories, which is why, you know, they have the Conjuring movie universe and some of the Amityville horror series. So they made a lot of movies through that as well. Um, and didn't they run a museum? Did they ever open yeah, that Yeah, we still up? have yeah. our museum. Yeah. It's still there. It's still there. But we don't let anybody just come and look at it. Which is kind of mind-blowing to me. That I they, mean, you would think that if they just opened that to the public, you'd be, they'd be making even more money. Right, yeah. But they don't. As far as I know. I don't get that. Sadly, Ed passed away in 2006. Rest in peace, Ed. After years of failing health, and Lorraine passed away in 2019, naturally, in her sleep. They have left behind a controversial legacy. Uh, many people have accused them of lying, being frauds, uh, exaggerating things. And later in this case, we'll kind of get to see a good example of their controversies. Uh, potential lies and exaggerations. Don't say that. Don't expose us. <laughs> I, Why are you exposing us I'm right now? I'm just reporting what has happened. Uh, you guys can make your own judgments out there, um, but we will we will show someone accusing them of uh, one more realistic problem, but some of the claims, some of the accusations <laughs> against them, this is, look, you're driving Ed to drink with these accusations. Come on, guys. You have to believe us. <laughs> if you're watching this right now, I need you to let me know that you believe in me. <laughs> let us know your thoughts. Are so, we frauds or not? Yeah, we want to know. I believe we are doing the Lord's work, and this is all 100% legitimate. But you tell us. Are we just in it for the money? Or are we doing it to help these poor souls that battle with the forces of darkness day in and day out that are tormented, that their homes are destroyed. You tell me. And I get me fired up right now. But once Mary got home, she called the Warrens and told them what was developing in the quiet city of Bridgeport. The Warrens trusted Mary's judgment and believed there was some legitimacy to the paranormal case. Ed headed there for a preliminary investigation to see if Mary's story was true. And once he got to the house, Ed introduced himself to Jerry, who had never heard of the Warrens before. But at this point, Jerry was desperate for a solution. So he let the Warrens and their team have free reign over the house during their investigation. Let's uh, take a little look at the archives here and hear what Ed first noticed upon entering the house. 
when I came over that hill onto Lindley Street, I seen numerous police and fire department vehicles, already a crowd of probably 200 people. I went in the house and here were police officers, firemen, uh, the Gooden family, neighbors, and it looked like somebody went through the house with a baseball bat, just smashed things off of the walls, knocked furniture over. Everybody was talking excitedly about the things that they had witnessed. There was a police officer there. I said to him, did you see anything? I certainly did, he said, Mr. Warren. I seen that clock come off that, off that wall. He said, I seen those chairs in the living room topple over, move across the room. That was enough for me. I'm getting this from a police officer. This man is a credible witness. So I start interviewing the family. I talked to Mr. and Mrs. Gooden first. I got all of the information from them, how it happened, when it started. It actually started on uh, Sunday or Saturday evening. They had come back from New York City. Mr. Gooden, Gerald Gooden, his wife, and their small daughter, the Marcy. The mother had gone into the kitchen. She was going to make a late supper for them. There's a large floor model television set right alongside the stove. All of a sudden, this thing started shaking, came right down onto her foot. It broke two of her toes. Well, another television set in Marcy's bedroom toppled off a shelf and fell onto the bed. Another television set, which was in the living room, toppled over and onto the floor. Now, one of the most fascinating things about the way things would fall, particularly the TV sets, was this heavy set would come down with a crash, but just before it hit the floor, it would hesitate and then hit. Never broke, never, never broke. smashed. Wow. Continually worked. Yeah, I do want to mention, uh, so this is 1974. Furniture back then, like the tube TVs, I don't know so if you heavy. So heavy. We're not talking about the little plasma Thin screen. LED screen. Screens here, yeah, is... it's none of that. Uh, those were incredibly heavy. I mean, my parents had one back in the day. Growing up, you probably had t tube TVs in your house. Oh, yeah. Those suckers were were massive and just furniture a dresser you know it's not like that plywood ikea yeah. furniture yeah. back then no this is like solid wood furniture yeah, yeah. it's like solid oak yeah so these, this is no joke when things are falling and smashing i remember i had a an old crt uh, up in my bedroom i think i was like 16 and one day we i mean this thing came down because i was stupid i had it on a little storage bin it smashed. It sounded like a bomb going off on the <laughs> second floor. I mean, it shook the house. Those things are heavy. Are nothing to screw with. Yeah. So Lorraine headed out from Monroe, Connecticut, where they lived at the time, and made her way over to Bridgeport to join Ed. Once she got to Lindley Street, she noticed a gathering of people outside the home that had grown by the hour. Once she finally got past the crowd and inside the house, the Goodens noticed that the Warrens had also brought along their associates. One was Father Bill Charbonneau, who you've probably heard of before, and they worked with often on their cases. The other was a 21-year-old seminary student with a strong interest in the paranormal named Paul Eno, and they all began interviewing police officers, firemen, and as many witnesses as they could. All the while, Marcy said it was fun having so many people in the house at once. 
Out of earshot, Ed told the seminary student Paul to keep an eye on Marcy the entire time, for safety and for observation. And from Mary's story, he also sensed that Marcy might have been the center of everything. Sure enough, while officers in the Warrens searched the house, Paul watched Marcy as she sat in one of the living room chairs. There's even a photo of her. They began shaking and slowly rising in the air. It stayed in the air for a few seconds before flipping over and dropping Marcy to the floor. While the Warrens continued their investigation, they witnessed falling curtain rods and lights going out for several minutes before turning back on without anyone ever flipping a switch. In the meantime, police contacted electric and plumbing inspectors to see if they could explain anything going on in the house, but none of them discovered anything of value. But on their way out, someone supposedly overheard police officers urging the inspectors to keep quiet if they saw anything strange during their time in the house. That afternoon, the paranormal activity suddenly stopped. Seeing that the police couldn't provide any help, they had told the Goodens to contact them if anything else happened. Within hours of them leaving, the activity started up again, and the crowd outside had grown to over 1,000 people that afternoon. As the story of the haunted house on Lindley Street spread, more and more people showed up to the house. News reporters rolled in and began interviewing the people, picnicking, performing vigils, and enjoying themselves around the house, but none of them were allowed inside. The Goodens refused any interviews and became worried about the growing crowd outside their home, so the police set up tape barricades and blocked off the street during the day to try and stop people from coming near the home. But people would sneak past the yellow tape to peek into the windows, and those that were lucky supposedly saw furniture moving on its own. In front of the house were two ceramic swans decorating either side of the front porch. Some claimed that the swans could be heard whispering strange things in a demon-like voice. Others claimed they saw the swans move a few inches at a time. But later that evening, the Warrens, Father Charbonneau, and Paul Eno left the property for the night, and they had to make their way through a massive crowd. When they returned the next day, the crowd had nearly doubled to 2,000 people, and reporters from several cities over had appeared. After conducting their preliminary investigation, Ed called the police superintendent, Joseph A. Walsh, and said that he was confident there was a poltergeist, and that was the source of the activity in the house. He told them how the furniture shook and ascended to the ceilings. A small ashtray and a plastic cross exploded, and the banging noise in the middle of the night continued. They even reported that some of the family cats were caught speaking to one of the policemen, and one of the Gooden's cats supposedly said, Bye-bye. And another cat spoke to one of the police officer's brothers. And another cat spoke one of the police officer's brother's name. Another time, Jerry believed he heard one of the cats speaking through the basement, asking to be let out. As for Lorraine, she was known to be hypersensitive to the paranormal. She was a clairvoyant, and usually uh, she experienced a lot of things more so than the other people. So she immediately experienced severe nausea the first time she entered Marcy's room. While the Warrens later joined Paul Eno, Father Charbonneau, and the Goodens in the kitchen to discuss all that they found, they watched as a second-degree burn began to form on Lorraine's hand down at the bottom of her palm, kind of towards her wrist area. Um, here's Paul Eno, many years after the fact, talking about what he witnessed. Now, guys, we got there Sunday morning. Uh, one of the most, one of the strangest things I've ever seen is this burn. I was, there were, of course, usual, full of people. People were coming in and out, press, police. There was a, a cop about 
400 pounds and eight feet high standing in the kitchen. I was at the kitchen table. Lorraine Warren was here. There was somebody else here. There was a radio reporter who was doing this recording. And there, were, there was a neighbor as well. So uh, there was a... And I literally saw this burn. She, she went, oh, and well, you'll hear it on the tape. And a, a white blister, second degree burn, began to form on her, up, up near her wrist. So the, the, I've, I've never seen that before, spontaneous burn. No one was smoking. There was no uh, source of heat uh, on that table. You know, people were drinking coffee, but that was, that was it. All right, now, uh, this, this was the one that I just described. Uh, I was, they're getting this very small kitchen. And I was standing by the kind of the, the sink over here, uh, to like right here. And say this is the there was television, floor model television. And there were plastic flowers on top that would start to move. He couldn't say, oh, you know, because he was an old hand at this by this time. He said, oh, this, that, that thing's going to go over. You shouldn't just stand too near it. Because naturally, I didn't listen to him. <laughs> Bang, the thing goes down. I can't understand why it didn't smash all over the floor. Hit me in the leg right about here. And I had a battle scar for this thing. Not the little girl and I crossed the room because she was standing right next to me. And that's what that was about because it was just, uh, I don't know, it was really, it really hurt too. <laughs> but I didn't, uh, it wasn't serious enough to go into the hospital as Mrs. Gooden did. Whatever presence was in that house, especially the kitchen uh, that was with them, disappeared after a moment. Um, Paul Eno still talks about it to this day and he's very adamant that what he saw was real. Uh, after they saw that burn mark appear on her hand, Ed and Father Charbonneau firmly believed that it wasn't just a poltergeist, but it was actually a demon that they were dealing with inside the home. What do you make of Paul Eno's story there? Henry telling it. He's super excited about it. And unfortunately, he comes off as the guy who would just I feel like he just wants to believe, so he's going to believe. <laughs> convincing himself. Yeah, but he was, I know he was the witness to a lot of these events because he was the one, even when the Warrens left the house at times, he was always watching Marcy because that was his job, was to keep an eye on Marcy almost at all times. So he was a witness that saw the most things. So I don't know. What do you think of him? Did we ever get a picture of that burn on Lorraine's hand? No, of course not. <laughs> as far as I could research, no picture. Dude, there's like no pictures of anything in this case, which I'll I'll talk I'll talk about doesn't my gripes mean it's later. It's not real. Okay. True. Just because they don't want to share the evidence doesn't mean that it didn't happen. True. But uh, for as much crazy shit that's happening solid wood furniture being levitated and thrown around TVs falling. I would love to see just a few little snapshots and with of the what that looked like with the sheer amount of people in that house too. What does no one have a camera here? It's like several firefighters, police, all these body police cam officers. Where's my on body cam? But where's my body cam? Well, footage? it's like, seriously, we got a picture of Marcy in the chair there wasn't a few other on that camera roll. <laughs> like, no, the only other ones are like of the house. And I think there's one more of Jerry standing or possibly sitting in the living room. No other photographic evidence. A ton of recordings, uh, supposedly from the radio station and whatnot. But 
kind of a bummer. No, uh, no photographs and not even films. I mean, Super 8s were pretty common back then around this time too, and not even any film footage. Yeah. Maybe it's because just the Warrens are trying to protect us from seeing this evil demonic force at work. Yeah. Because at this point, they thought an exorcism was necessary. But the Monsignor at the local church didn't agree with their analysis. Even though they didn't have approval from the church, the Warrens thought it was necessary to continue with an exorcism on their own. As a side note, an archbishop would later reprimand Father Charbonneau for speaking publicly about this case, which maybe that says something about this case. During their meeting, Paul Eno had been holding onto Marcy's chair with one hand and it began to shake and rise once again in the air. Snap, snap, snap. As he pushed down on the chair to get it back on the ground, he was surprised when the force gave up and he was able to guide the chair back to its spot. Ed, Lorraine, and Father Charbonneau then headed back to their places in Monroe to grab the things they needed for an exorcism. Meanwhile, Paul Eno stayed behind for the rest of the evening to monitor Marcy. The activity died down, but later in the evening, Paul, the Goodens, and the family friend named Barbara Carter experienced something in the house they would never forget. On that evening of November 25th, 1974, the skies turned gray and rain began pummeling the roof. Some of the people outside returned home, but many crowded under trees to wait out in the rain. In the house, 10-year-old Marcy played Monopoly on the living room floor with Barbara to distract themselves and kill some time. Paul sat in a chair reading a book. Jerry watched them from across the room and Laura hid away in the bedroom. Everything had been calm for a few hours up until Jerry felt a tight feeling in his shoulders and the weight of the room became heavy. Jerry looked over at the others but saw that they went on as usual like everything was normal and he was the only one who felt off. But when the living room lights started flickering, everyone took their eyes off what they were doing and looked up. The fluorescent bulb sometimes flickered when it got too cold, but the thermostat on the wall said it was 70 degrees inside. On the opposite wall hung a painting of the Last Supper, of course. As the light flickered a few more times, the painting came crashing down to the floor. Now all of them felt the heaviness in the room. Each of them watched as the couch began moving and turning on its own. Jerry could hear the distant sobbing of his wife in their bedroom. He wanted to go and comfort her, but he was petrified at what was happening in the living room. The pressure in the room moved past them, and something began materializing in front of their own eyes. It was described as a smoky, yellowish-white, gauzy mist that had floated out of Marcy's room. It took no shape at first, but it slowly formed into four smoky, humanoid figures. As Barbara watched the figures form in a straight line, she made the sign of the cross, hoping it would protect her. Then the pungent smell of sulfur filled the room. Jerry suddenly felt an impulse to begin humming something under his breath. But when his voice got louder, the others looked over at him in confusion because it sounded more like he was humming a prayer in a voice that wasn't his own. The humming then transformed into a full prayer in Latin. According to Paul Eno, he began chanting prayers of a requiem mass and a mass of the angels, which is usually recited in the Catholic Church when a child dies. Jerry's strange attitude then turned into rage and he began chanting louder. The energy in the room elevated the figures and one of them drifted across the room toward him until he physically felt the presence against him. Supposedly, one of the figures then tossed Marcy across the room. Paul screamed for everyone to flee the house 
and the crowd watched as the family escaped to safety through the front door. Paul then ran over to one of the neighbor's houses to call the Warrens, as well as the police. Here's Tony Spera reading police reports from that day, November 25th. And it's uh, here it says it's, it's City of Bridgeport letterhead, and it says to Captain Charles Baker, Front Patrolman George F. Wilson, Jr., and it says reference, Strange Occurrences at 966 Lindley Street. And it starts out, Sir, I was on patrol in A23 and went over to cover G35 on an unknown call at 966 Lindley Street. Upon my arrival, we found the inside of the house looking as though someone had completely ransacked it. Mm-hmm. We were then advised by the people that strange things were happening, furniture moving, things falling from the walls, etc. At this time, I entered the kitchen and saw the refrigerator actually leave the floor approximately six to eight inches and move towards me a couple of feet. I then went into the living room and saw a chair bounce around. I, at this time, attributed these strange things to something natural, such as gas or termites. So I called the radio room to send some inspectors from the fire department to check the house. The fire department arrived, checked the house, and stated there was nothing wrong with the house that they could find, and they left. I was in and out of the house all day for different reasons and spent approximately four hours total in the house. During this time, I observed several strange things happen. Of these were the following. I saw a large TV slowly make a 90-degree turn away from us and face a wall. A bureau bounced on the floor a couple of times. A crucifix nailed to the wall vibrate and pull itself off the wall. Um, A picture on the wall fell and nearly struck my partner, Patrolman Leroy Lawson. Three different reclining chairs bounced around, changing positions in the room. And a large clock on a shelf in the kitchen uh, fall to the floor. And the last sentence is, all of the proceeding is what I actually saw inside of 966 Lindley Street, respectfully submitted Patrolman George F. Wilson, Jr., Tony, read, read Lawson. Is this Lawson's report? Uh, the next report is uh, also a police report by, this is by a patrolman. It says to Captain Baker uh, from patrolman Leroy Lawson, and then the subject, it says, Haunted House. Mm-hmm. Sir, while on patrol in car A23, my partner and I went to 966 Lindley Street to cover G35. Upon entering the house, I saw a picture fall off the wall, a small desk move, and the clock on the kitchen wall fall. I immediately left the house and waited outside for my partner, respectfully submitted Patrolman Leroy Lawson, and uh, same date on it. Yes. I ha- the reason I wanted to so, read they always so mean. My God. They always cut Why off. Why are they always? I want to hear from Lorraine. I and know. Like, they always cut her off. It's so sad. She's like... I don't know. Maybe she's a little long-winded or something, so they don't want her to start talking. But yeah, they always cut her off in this show. I don't know why. So, did they ever release the police reports? So, what happened with them? Which I think they're the most convincing things about this whole story. Yeah, because I'm like, why would these police officers just like go along with this hoax, right? To make up this shit and be like, yeah, we went in this house and shit was flying around and scared me, so I left. So, I mean, obviously you can argue that, uh, 
you know, they're just reading off of a made up piece of paper. But as far as <laughs> I know, the skeptics would probably be like, oh, they could have just made that up. But as far as I know, the actual police reports, uh, someone was afraid that they were going to get lost eventually just over time as yeah, decades sure. pass, all these physical pieces of paper, they probably have to reduce it for space. So they just get rid of them after a while, especially if the case is closed. So someone actually tape recorded and, and read off all of the police reports. And there are just, I don't know, there's probably like two dozen tapes that exist now, um, which we'll get into some of the recordings of what happened to them a bit later, but they're now in the hands of the author who wrote the book about this case. So they're out there, not in the sense that you'd think, but supposedly those recordings are still still exist. Yeah. Okay. All right. So the Warrens returned to the house as fast as they could around 9 p.m. that night. When they drove up Lindley Street, they could only find parking four blocks down. That's just how many people were crowded around the house. This paranormal story spread across national news, including Canada and even as far as Australia. Supposedly around 4,000 people now back to the streets. Dude, that's, that's crazy. Insanity. Also, does no one else have anything to do in this yeah, town? Yeah, like what? They're just like, we got to stand outside and just look at this house. Yeah. It became it like even a festival. It was just like, let's go hang out at Lindley Street. So police had to set up street barricades on either side of the street in order to protect the crowd from the vehicles. Meanwhile, more officers arrived to protect the house and the goodens from the crowd. Two members of the local WNAB radio station, including the host, Jack Quinn, convinced the Goodens to let them go inside. And they themselves witnessed tipping furniture, moving TVs, and unexplained noises similar to everyone else's experience. So yet more witnesses. Meanwhile, the Warrens and Father Charbonneau headed downstairs to begin their blessings. While down in the murky cement basement, Father Charbonneau caught movement in the corner of his eye. He noticed a strange-looking shadow on the opposite end of the basement. It looked like an illusion, as it first appeared like a regular shadow, but was lifted several feet off the wall. When he got closer, he noticed he could move behind the shadow and even pass his hand through it. As his skin touched the shadow, it felt like a cool mist. When he asked the Warrens if they could also see the strange shadow figure, they nodded. Not only could they see it, but they believed that what they were looking at was a manifestation of a demon. So here's where the case goes off the rails. Okay, party pooper. <laughs> I am just reporting the facts here. Um, sorry. Sorry if... Uh, the, actually, Officer Mike Costello is the actual party pooper here. Okay. By the evening of November 26th, Officer Mike Costello, he took over the shift of watching the house. And his shift actually ended up changing the course of this entire investigation, which we'll see there are actual layers to this investigation and why it closed. But while he was sitting there in the living room with the Goodens, he noticed something odd happening with the recliner that Marcy was near, but he figured it was just Marcy messing with it. Not long after, two other officers knocked on the front door. Jerry and Laura got up to answer it and began speaking with the officers. So with all their heads turned, Mike watched as Marcy stretched out from the recliner, pushed the living room TV so it lightly bumped into Jerry's leg. And she didn't realize that Mike had been watching her. 
When Mike asked why she pushed the TV, Marcy just said she wanted to see how the demon would respond. And with that, Mike thought he had cracked the case. (laughs) (laughs) It was Marcy the whole time. (laughs) So Mike became certain just from witnessing this. Mike was now certain that Marcy had staged everything in the house. What? Yeah, just from that. Get out of here. So he contacted the superintendent, Joseph A. Walsh, whom he knew wanted to wrap up the investigation as fast as possible. Mike told him what he saw Marcy do and that he believed she had fabricated the entire poltergeist situation. The superintendent then told Mike to interview the girl and try to get a confession out of her. He tag teamed the interview with another officer and Marcy eventually confessed that she was responsible for moving the TV and other objects in the house. At first, she only admitted to the more recent activities, but as the interrogation went on, the officers kept up the pressure and she confessed to more and more, which, I mean, we know how these interviews and interrogations can go with, uh, with children, so who's to say what she's saying is true, but supposedly the first thing she admitted to pretty heavily was that the cats talking were a hoax. Uh, supposedly it was set up by some of the other officers who were just trying to prank another officer. What? Yeah. So they set it up so that when that officer they're pranking asked Marcy, if she knew anything about the talking cat or had, had heard it, she was supposed to say that the cat told her that officer's name, brother's name was actually Frank. And then that officer freaked out and left the house. Get the hell out of here. So, yeah. So the officers are in on this hoax. Now the officers are in on it. Meanwhile, people are being murdered in Bridgeport, and these officers are, are taking part in a haunted house yeah, attraction. Just goofing and gaffing. What on earth? This might reveal that their police reports could have been, been fabricated. Yeah, unfortunately. Now, here's not damning evidence against the police officers, but this is damning evidence against Lorraine. This is damning <gasps> evidence against me. Careful who you accuse. Marcy said that Lorraine burned her own hand intentionally by holding it under steaming hot water. What? Yeah. So the whole burned hand thing that Brian, not Brian Eno, Brian Eno, the musician, uh, Paul, <laughs> Paul Eno, correct? Yeah. Paul Eno. Um, you know, he was really excited about that. And he said he saw it, that the blister formed, but supposedly Marcy said she saw Lorraine holding it under steaming hot water. So that is a damning accusation (laughs) right there that Lorraine's self mutilating herself for these cases. Right. I don't know about that. So after they wrapped up this interview, the officers left the house and the Bridgeport police department immediately ruled the haunting on Lindley street as an official hoax. And their main goal, which we'll see uh, was just hoping to disperse the crowds and be done with this situation. They also didn't like the news coverage of it. It made them look bad. Uh, they also suggested that Marcy should get psychiatric counseling, which the Goodens agreed to. So this was kind of a bombshell. <laughs> oh my God. Street. Not to mention the misuse of police resources here. <laughs> no, there's, <laughs> like, there's like 20 police For officers all these people. Over like, ah, oh, it's a hoax. Pack it up, boys. We're going home. <laughs> Like, nobody's getting charged with criminal offenses here. Right. This episode of Lights Out is brought to you by 
NordVPN. If you don't know what NordVPN is, well, you're not alone. You know, being as old as I am, I had no idea what a VPN was until I did. Because these days, the internet is a dangerous place. Avoid identity theft, avoid having your bank account drained, and take advantage of the security and protection that NordVPN offers. You can become safer with just a single click. Plus, it allows you to access all of your favorite content no matter where in the world you are. NordVPN is more than just a VPN though. The threat protection shields you from malware, trackers, and ads. Dark web monitor notifies you if someone leaks your credentials, which is very, very nice to have. MeshNet allows you to connect to your devices remotely and securely. Dedicated IP helps you avoid CAPTCHAs and block lists. NordVPN is privacy oriented, which that's all I care about these days is just stay in private. Your traffic is always protected with a robust encryption. Turn on the kill switch to make sure your data is never exposed. And they have so many other extra perks, which really helped me out, including 24 seven customer support to help you wherever you need it. 30 day money back guarantee for all users, dedicated apps for all major platforms and one account secures up to six devices. I love NordVPN. So if you're ready to join me in using NordVPN, today is the day. Get NordVPN two-year plan plus four months free at nordvpn.com slash lights out. It's risk-free with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. You got nothing to lose to try it out today. Get NordVPN's two-year plan plus four months free for free here at nordvpn.com slash lights out. It's risk-free with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. So no matter how hard the police tried to rationalize everything, the paranormal activity at the house only got worse from here, of course. Thousands of people had gathered on Lindley Street at the height of the investigation. And now that the police tape and barricades were removed, the crowd pushed in towards the house and onto the lawn. Local news quickly reported the official ruling of a hoax, and many accused the Warrens of fabricating the poltergeist. Some even accused them of drugging Marcy with candy that was laced with hallucinogens just to get her to see strange visions. Wow. I would never. That is just, I think that's crossing the line there. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Supposedly they saw Ed hand her a piece of candy and someone... They think Ed laced it with yes. some LSD or something. <laughs> Isn't that like, crazy? What? After hearing the rumors and accusations, Paulino tried to drive over to the house and talk with the Goodens, but he was told to leave and not come back. As the accusations spread and the police abandoned the house, the remaining crowd got more unruly. Some locals broke pieces of paint off the ceramic swans as souvenirs or tore off branches from the nearby trees. Some even grabbed at Marcy and tore a pocket off of her shirt when she was outside the house. On the evening after the Goodens returned from Thanksgiving dinner, Jerry noticed a smell of smoke inside the house. Three suspects were arrested and two were charged with attempted arson. So people are just taking this to the next level. They, they're still believing that there is something demonic in this house that they must destroy. The men who were charged made the excuse that they were just trying to cleanse the house. It was crimes like this that the police department was afraid of and a big reason they closed the investigation in the first place. 
Police also knew that they still had an obligation to protect the family, even though many believed that the poltergeist story was a hoax. So they kept someone posted at the house at all times until the crowd thinned out over the next few days. Meanwhile, the Warrens had quite a few accusations made against them. And here's what Ed had to say about it being declared a hoax. Sorry, we're not going to hear from Lorraine. Just of course. Ed. <laughs> Just Ed. We only care about what Ed has to say. <laughs> so let's hear from Ed. On the, on the radio was, it was a hoax. The little girl did it. A 90-pound, 10-year-old child could move a 450-pound refrigerator two feet away from us, and we wouldn't see how she did it. Police officers seen it. They experienced it. They wrote down the reports. But Chief Walsh, who was a superintendent at that time, made it his business to make sure that he was going to call that a hoax. He called up the media, told them that the little girl was a ventriloquist, that it was her that was projecting this voice around the cat. What? That both Father Charbonneau and I and other investigators and people heard. This is a materialized larynx, which usually occurs in what we call poltergeist cases. Now, I understand why he called it a hoax, to get rid of 15,000 people. He had to take the barricades down and he told the Goodens that night through a detective and two patrolmen that he would pull all of his men out of there. They would take down the barricades and let the crowds do what they wanted if they did not go along with his idea about a hoax. They went along with it. But three months later, they appeared on Tiny Markle's show, which was a talk show in Bridgeport, Connecticut. On that show, they spoke about the police officers coming in and telling them that they had to call it a hoax. But the media never followed up on that. What happened here was the media said that the little girl did it, the parents did it. I want to clear these people's names today. I believe that Chief Walsh, who was the chief of police in Bridgeport at that time, should be man enough to come forward 26 years later and say, yes, it wasn't a hoax. I had men go in there. I had them confront the Goodens to say that it was a hoax to get rid of all those people. He not only made fools out of the family and us, he made fools out of his own men. These police officers were hourly going into the media, which were all around the house, in the house, telling them about the things that they experienced. Now, on one occasion, I was standing in the kitchen Father Charbonneau, Catholic priest, was right near the bedroom, which was only maybe 14 feet away from where I was. <clears throat> there were three police officers, Lorraine, the Gooden family. We're all standing around. Suddenly, when I was talking, I noticed that there was a movement from my peripheral vision on the sink. A set of Malmac dishes flew across the room and landed on the floor. Not the, the television Malmack dishes. <laughs> which no. many times went over in the kitchen, suddenly went over. The television set in the girls' room, which we put up on a shelf many times, came down again. A crucifix, which was on a wall, was made of plastic, just burst. This was one incident. Didn't you say that somebody, well, I don't know if it was the chief or not, said about you giving the girl a special lifesaver? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. What happened? <laughs> I had lifesavers in my pocket. I took the lifesavers out. I took one, little Marcy Gooden, was looking at me, 
was I not going to offer this child a lifesaver? <laughs> so you offered her a lifesaver. Here, Marcy. Later on, the chief of police told the Goodens that I gave her some kind of magic candy <laughs> that would put her into a trance. Ooh. And that I could go up into Monroe, Connecticut. And control her. From my house, 20-some miles away, and that I could move all these things in the house. If I could do that, Tony, I would be the one that would be getting the write-up, not really? the Goodens. Yeah, you'd be like a magician. It was, but, but, it was ridiculous. But I wish this man would come forward and tell the truth. I mean, I know he's an old guy today. What has he got to lose? Chief, come forward. Tell the truth after all these years. You've made fools out of your own men. You've made fools out of us. All the investigators that went in there, the firemen, Chief Swirling of the fire department, walked in there and seen three huge reclining chairs jumping around and piling up on top of each other. Reporters went in there, seen things, heard things. I have all of these accounts. I have all the interviews on tape, just as I did 26 years ago. You have audio tape of the police officers? I don't have audio. I have uh, the video. No, yeah, I do have audio. Audio. I don't have any videotape. (laughs) No, there was no video then. There were so many witnesses to this experience. Please shut up immediately. Good God. I just want to know what Tony thinks. Can we ask Tony? (laughs) Who wasn't there. Who wasn't there, spent a lot of time with these guys. I want to hear Tony's opinion. Lorraine, don't you dare say anything. Man. God. It's crazy. And I, I, you know what? I take it back. I accuse Lorraine of maybe being long-winded and that's why they shut her down. But it's, it's Ed is the long-winded one. Yeah, Ed is the long, it's just all about Ed. It really is. All about me. He's got a main character complex. Me, 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 I'm the cool one. (laughs) I'm the demonologist. You're just the I'm just the clairvoyant. (laughs) Just the clairvoyant medium woman. Yeah. Man. Justice for Lorraine, really. It does seem a justice for Lorraine. (laughs) Seriously. It does seem like Ed's a a bit egotistical. He's got his ego uh, knocked down a few notches by the fact that Superintendent Walsh won't back him up. Yeah, he was mad. You could tell he was getting a little agitated even just in the interview. He's like, you made us look like fools and all your men. Yeah. That is crazy, though, that the police officers, you know, went on the radio station. I could not find the audio, but how is it that all this stuff is just not out there? Uh, dude, it's, it makes no sense. And it's just like cause it's that long ago that it's hard to. That's probably a part of, of it. it. And like, and I know it's a lot of it is the author has, uh, which we'll get into. William Hall uh, supposedly has a, some of the evidence, a lot of this. And uh, that's got to be strategic, right? But. Maybe he's hoping for a movie deal or something. Yeah, that could be it too. Yep. Uh, but as far as like, they even claim like, oh no, there was no, vo- there was no video footage or, or whatever like that. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. Well, whose fault is that? Really? Yeah. My God. With all the people in that house. But yeah, you can see Ed's riled up. Ed's not happy. Uh, and he even called out Chief or Superintendent Joseph A. Walsh. Unfortunately, he has passed away last year in 2022. He never came forward. Never came forward. Um, but a lot of people in in the few weeks that followed the hoax allegations, a lot of people backed them up. Fire Chief Jack Messina also agreed that Marcy couldn't have physically performed what they witnessed in the house. Radio reporter Tim Quinn confirmed he couldn't rationalize what he saw inside 
and police just wanted to shut down the case to disperse the crowd. The final call to claim it was a hoax was just the means to an end to basically get the crowd to disperse because obviously they saw some people getting unruly. Uh, I also think Ed might have misspoke here. He said there was 15,000 people. That's not true as far as the reports 15,000 people would be like a damn concert yeah, or, I, or like a football stadium. I like. think he meant to say there are 15,000 people in the neighborhood who uh, lived there, but not present on Lindley Street. Um, Officer Joseph Tomic also stood by his claims that he had seen bizarre things in the house and couldn't explain them. He also defended the Goodens and said there was no way they could have fabricated what he had seen inside. Another officer supported those statements. Officer Charles D'Amato was quoted saying, quote, here's a good one. Either it's for real or all of these people are in a conspiracy against me to make me believe. The little girl couldn't do this all by herself. They all belong in jail, just like Watergate. <laughs> <laughs> the mother was a complete believer. If she was putting on an act, it's the best act I've ever seen. That's pretty good. Uh, Also topical calling out Watergate. (laughs) Paul Eno was another supporter of the poltergeist being real. He was later actually expelled from seminary school uh, before he could even be ordained as a priest. And it was mostly as far as uh, what he said, it was because of his strong interest in the paranormal. Uh, He continued to give lectures for many years on the Lindley Street haunting after the fact I'm not sure what he's up to today, but he was a staunch supporter that there was something paranormal going right. on. He actually did not believe it was demons or spirits or a poltergeist at all. Interesting. So here's his theory, which I think you'll get a kick out of. In sum, he believed that different levels of consciousness are layered between the multiverse. Different realms and planes of existence collide or overlap every so often. He called these entities on Lindley Street, quote, multiversal parasites. They fed off the negative energy of the household, and he could actually feel them enter and exit rooms of the house, even if they didn't move anything at all. I like this theory. Yeah. He also believed that... plausible. Yeah, right? He also believed that Marcy never actually confessed to seeing Lorraine pour hot water on her right arm. That was just a myth, I guess, and possibly the police were fabricating things, so... A lot of pointing fingers here. Who's lying? Who's not? It's hard to say. Paul also claimed that he was there at the kitchen table, saw the wound formed for his eyes, and there is supposedly tape recorder evidence somewhere out there by the radio station crew that was also in the kitchen at this time of him calling out the heat blister as it was forming. The recording is supposedly in possession of the guy I mentioned earlier, author William J. Hall. He's the author and magician who wrote The World's Most Haunted House, which was about the Lindley Street haunting. William supposedly also has recordings of the original pounding noises that were recorded by Jerry, which was a reel-to-reel that was about nine hours of audio. And he also supposedly has the recordings of all the police reports that someone read out, which I talked about earlier. Um, There's a picture of the recording, the supposed recordings that he has. Um, hmm. Supposedly, in in that book, there was a URL to a recording of something of the pounding noises. I believe couldn't find it. If anyone out there can find it, uh, shoot shoot me the link. We'd love to post that. I couldn't find it for the life of me. 
and it seems like his old website uh, doesn't even exist anymore. So I don't know what he's out of the game. Yeah. So after the official ruling of a hoax, the Goodens told the Warrens never to return to the house again. Damn. Oof. They believed Marcy was telling the truth about Lorraine burning herself with hot water. And they also discovered that Ed had been using their home phone to contact the press to get more media attention surrounding the house. Yikes. Come on, Ed. Jerry and Laura then contacted their lawyers and were told not to participate in any interviews with the media. Pressure from the local news soon died down and the locals that had gathered around the house eventually went home. But now the Goodens had more problems than ever. Jerry got harassed at work and constantly bothered by his coworkers about the poltergeist. And since he still wasn't making that much money, they struggled with fixing the home and replacing the items that had been broken. Even though the strange events had died down, the paranormal activity never completely went away. After about a week or two, on December 10th, 1974, the Goodens packed up for a trip and headed to New York. The house was in perfect order when they left and when they returned. It was half destroyed. Furniture was turned over, including the TVs. The ornaments on the Christmas tree had fallen to the floor, and they found their favorite statue of the Virgin Mary on the floor, with the thumbs detached. They had partially believed that Marcy was behind the strange activity in the house, but now they knew for certain that was impossible. Even some of the officers posted at the house admitted to the Goodens that they heard strange things going on in the house after it was ruled a hoax. The Goodens had also recently gotten a new dog, hoping it would bring some comfort to the household. But some nights the dog would bark at nothing at all, like something invisible was present inside the house. Laura soon believed that the entity was getting more powerful, and she soon became paranoid that the demon, or whatever was in their house, had the goal of killing them all. They asked Father Doyle, the local priest, if there was anything they could do, and he told them he was in the process of trying to approve an exorcism of the home under church authority. But sadly, it was never approved. Eventually, a different paranormal investigator reached out to the Goodens by phone on December 16th. And who was that? So sadly, the Warrens are now out of this investigation. They're being replaced by a man, Boyce Beatty. He was a systems analyst. I think he worked for an insurance company. And he was a self-described, quote, parapsychologist by avocation. He specialized in... This is quite a long list, pretty nutty stuff that he was into, which is cool. Astral travel, psychic healing, Curlian photography, I think I'm saying that right, which I didn't know what it was. It's photographic techniques used to capture the phenomenon of electrical coronal discharges. Don't even ask me what Whoa. that is. I, I don't really understand it. Uh, and he was also really obsessed with clinical death experiences, especially focusing on whether you can even get proof that the consciousness survives death. And I wonder if that maybe plays into the photography he was interested in, if he could actually physically capture the consciousness maybe leaving the body or something happening. Uh, but that's what he was interested in. He was a smart guy. He graduated from Princeton University and studied in a parapsychology laboratory at Duke University after he graduated. This new investigation on Lindley Street would become known as the Duke University Investigation. And whatever he researched, he usually brought a team with him. And many of the team members, including himself, were involved in the Academy of Religion and Psychical Research in Bloomfield, Connecticut. On December 18th, Boyce and two team members were invited to the house on Lindley Street, and they began their investigation. 
but under one condition. They all agreed to keep their investigation private and out of the media. The team had already contacted Ed Warren and he told them everything he knew. They also worked with a few police officers from the Bridgeport Police Department and a police official who was partially responsible for closing the investigation. The police were more comfortable working with Boyce and his team because there would be no media coverage and no massive crowds outside the home. One police official even admitted that he was under pressure by his superiors to close the investigation and they had pressured Marcy for a confession so they could close the case to avoid public scrutiny. Over the next several weeks, Boyce and his team inspected the house and witnessed paranormal events similar to the ones before. And by January 1975, they finished their investigation and they even conducted a series of psychological tests on each family member and concluded that they were all of sound mind. So here are the results of their investigation. Uh, First and foremost, I think this was the one thing they really focused on was they noticed that the Goodens' overbearing protectiveness of their daughter, Marcy, was causing a lot of distress and unhappiness in the family. And this created a, what they called a pathological environment that might've opened up the household to the poltergeist in the first place. In many poltergeist cases, which we kind of mentioned before, there are theories that unhappy children might tap into some unseen energies or possibly open a gateway for poltergeists, or they might even be the primary source of the paranormal activity. In general, that negative energy within a household manifests, attracts, and feeds these entities. Boyce Beatty's team also proposed a theory that inviting so many people into their home You know, there was police, firefighters, the Warrens, all the priests, the civil engineers. This really disrupted the psychology or parapsychology of the household. So by inviting more people into the house to fix the issue was actually making more problems. By the end of their investigation, Boyce Beatty and his team truly believed they dealt with a real poltergeist case where the entity was capable of paranormal psychokinetic effects. Uh, But they also acknowledged that some of the activity was, in fact, being caused by Marcy herself. So, wow. That's uh, quite a summation of what was going on. But I think they kind of nailed it. Yeah. They nailed it, I think. Much better diagnosis there. So after the team wrapped up their investigation, the paranormal activity in the house seemed to die down. At some point, the Goodens tried repainting and selling the home, but from the property damage and the story of a poltergeist haunting, the property was well known by then and they failed to sell it, and they ended up living there for the rest of their lives. Laura Gooden passed away in a traffic accident in June 1993, and her husband Jerry passed away from natural causes in September 1997. The house was ultimately sold in 1998 for $20,000. As for Marcy, she faded away from the public eye soon after the case closed. It's believed she returned to Canada sometime in the 1980s and went by the name Jean and later Marcia. According to Paul Eno, Marcy left the house in Bridgeport angry with her parents, but it's unclear why, and her whereabouts were unknown for years. It was later discovered that she suffered from epilepsy and multiple sclerosis, or MS. She later passed away from complications from MS on February 10, 2015, at the age of 51, in Shelby, Ohio. The book The World's Most Haunted House by William J. Hall was published in 2014, a year before Marcy passed. The author tried to find Marcy for an interview, but couldn't. He was later contacted by her half-sister after Marcy had already passed, 
Years after the fact, the story of the Lindley Street poltergeist is still talked about in Bridgeport to this day, and it's regarded as one of the most witnessed paranormal events in history. So there you go. There <sighs> is the poltergeist on 966 Lindley Street. So a lot to, to, to talk about here, a lot to try to wrap our heads around. Let's, uh, let's start with the Warrens though. Yeah. What do you, what do you think about the accusations? And I think it's all false. (laughs) Are are you just in character or are you actually think? (laughs) I think, I think, uh, (laughs) it's, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a fan. Yeah. And I think it's, it's kind of the myth and the legend at this point. And there's, you know, there's no other duo like those two, right? So it kind of kills the legend to think that they were potentially defrauding people and, you know, making this stuff up. Although I still, you know, there's still not a lot of hard evidence to suggest that they were faking all of these things. And I think it's kind of one of those situations where it compares to say like ghost adventures or some of the other paranormal entertainment shows out there where is it possible that they showed up, they witnessed these events and you know, maybe they made up their own minds about what it was and perhaps sprinkle a little bit of uh, exaggeration in there in the storytelling. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think necessarily that they were completely fraudulent though. I think, I think Ed clearly knew a lot about, you know, demonology and, you know, he was very, very into this. I think Lorraine was potentially had some clairvoyant abilities and, and may or may not have contributed a whole lot to the cases. But I think, I think ultimately they did do what they say they did. They did go to these reported cases. They did talk to the family. They did do their own investigation so i think you can take that for what it is but ultimately was it a good investigation was it good gathering of evidence yeah i think it's pretty questionable right yeah. like you know I there's not a whole the, lot of evidence to show for it at right. this point but and uh, like i agree with you because i think let's say even if lorraine was in fact burning her own hand with scalding water Okay, that makes her a liar, maybe exaggerating things, but that doesn't necessarily mean there wasn't something going on in the house, right? Um, or even, you know, they caught Ed using the home phone to get more media hype around it. Yeah, it might be they're, I don't know, they're planning to make this bigger than it actually is. Again, doesn't necessarily mean that nothing was going on. I think my biggest gripe with the case is I think, honestly, I think extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, and I I can't wrap my head around why it's not available. Even if it is out there, or if it's not out there, then why? Why was there no... There were so many people in that home, and this isn't even... I'm not even coming straight at the Warrens, coming at anyone. The police? What, none of you had a camera? None of you had a Super 8 at home that you could have snagged and... Uh, what about Paul Eno? You were there with Marcy almost the whole time, and you're saying that you saw all these things. It never crossed your mind to bring a camera? It never crossed your mind to do this? 
And then they all say like, oh, but there are these recordings. There's the recordings, there's recordings. And then I can't even find the recordings because they're being locked away in storage right. by the author that wrote about the case. So that's, I think my gripe is just the hard evidence. But this is with the sheer amount of eyewitness testimony is, is kind of convincing. Also, why would police officers later go on the radio show and openly make statements that like, hey, our superiors were telling us to shut this down, but we actually believed it. Uh, seems like they would, as police often do, is kind of protect their own, not completely right. shit on their chief. So that's kind of wild. I thought that was fairly convincing that they would do something like that. But, yeah, I think I think the biggest thing for me is just thinking about the sheer amount of paranormal activity that's going on here. You've got large large objects levitating you got a fridge levitating you've got huge you know you got big bulky tvs falling over you got curtains flying off the rods it's like there is something whether it's a poltergeist whether it's some you know multiversal parasite Parasite. i mean whatever it is i mean there's something very very strange going on here and it seems like it'd be a good idea to try and figure out what the hell's going on and investigate it and and share that information in order to try to learn from it and try to get to the root of what's going on here. And I think the one issue that I really have with the Warrens is they come at it from a very one-sided point of view. They come at it from the 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 Catholic point of view and they stick to that. Mm-hmm. And I think they're a little bit more open-minded than than a lot of Catholics would be if they witnessed something like this, but I think they're just so hell bent on it being something demonic. Most of the times, like that's usually Ed's some, you know, assumption is like, Oh, this is something demonic. Next step is to get an exorcism ordered and Oh wait, the church doesn't like us. So let's go, we'll do it ourselves uh, per usual. And so I think that's my, my, one of my big gripes with them is that they just come at this from a sheer point of view of like, well, it must be a demon. So, and maybe sometimes they fabricate the evidence to support that so that they can then be the heroes at the end of the day. You know, it's kind of like the classic good versus evil superhero story of like, Oh, Ed and Lorraine Warren swoop in and they saved the day. And they really didn't in this case, they got booted off, booted out of it. I think that's why we saw Ed get so kind of upset about it. He got kicked out. This is one of the cases where it ends where the Warrens are just like, Jerry's like, don't come into my home again. You guys are out of here. And then they even replaced them with other uh, paranormal experts, which is wild. And I appreciated that second investigation a bit more because they were at least open to the idea, accepting that there's a little bit more nuance to it. It's like, hey, we know that Marcy was probably moving these objects to some degree. We're yeah. not saying because they even admitted we also think it's a poltergeist case, but also we know that there was a lot of turmoil within the relationships of this household, and that could have contributed to a lot of what was going on. So I appreciated that, and like you were saying, I think Ed and Lorraine go in there with maybe some preconceived notions. Totally. It's, this, it's, a, it's a Catholic lore-based yeah. demon, right. and it's nothing else. Right. And it's like another one to add to their, you know, repertoire. Yeah. And, you know, oh, you know, if we get more media attention on this, guess whose names are going to pop up in that article? Yeah. The Warrens are. You know, mm-hmm. it's like advertising for themselves, and this is how that, you know, they didn't charge, but 
they manipulated the situation to get more press for themselves so that every they're a household name. I mean, look at us now. We're talking about them <laughs> years and years later. Yeah. And, you know, they're continuing to make films about these guys. These guys are uh infamous to to some extent because we're still talking about them. We're still telling their stories. So they did a good job at marketing themselves and and really sucking us in to the the lore that is the Warren files and all of these stories that they they proclaim are are real and and truly uh real paranormal experiences that they had and i think i think it's just it's so compelling it's like any good story you know it yeah. sucks you in and you get so like just blown away by what's going on that you and they're such likable people. I mean, for the most part. I mean, Ed, Ed in this one, I started to turn a little bit on him because he's and when shutting they, down Lorraine. So much. Like, shutting oh down God. Lorraine. Yeah. But it's like it's the. I, I think people really like couples too. There's yeah, something that, relatable. A, they're kind them. of a power dynamic between the two of them, and I think they knew that that worked. At least, even just narratively, I think they knew that that worked. A couple who wouldn't be interested in that kind of interesting but danny what uh yeah what are, what are you thinking over there mr mr uh, key in man mr <laughs> <laughs> lime green where do you stand on the warrens in this i mean this case i definitely think this case is a bit more nuanced than some of the previous ones like austin was saying like marcy you know was definitely playing into a little bit having fun with it but she's also a kid so but yeah i don't think she can move a huge fridge tv all these things as far as the warrens go i think ed i think maybe they started off having good intentions but as their careers went on they really were kind of pining more for that hero complex yeah. and selling especially themselves ed. in the media oh especially yeah. and i think as you know with him using the home phone to get more media attention he kind of lost himself in the spectacle of the thing instead of like actually trying to help the family because if, if there was if there was 2,000 people outside that front door and he was still calling people to come in, it's obvious he cared more about what was going on outside outside the house than what was going on inside the house. So whether or not they're a they're like they're fraud, they're a fraud, I don't know. But I do think if they did start out genuine, they lost themselves by the end of their careers. Yeah, that's also what bummed me about this case. It's like we have the Warrens that are pushing their narrative. And then we have even the police who are pranking each other and doing bullshit in the house. And it, and in the meantime, there's this family in turmoil that I, people are just exploiting and, and everyone's just having a good time. The crowds show up. It's like a little festival of, of paranormal <laughs> it's, activity. Know, it's wild. But the clearly, I mean, this like Marcy was in distress. I, I don't, I think that household was probably toxic and, she did leave in the end. She left the family. I don't know if she had any contact with them after that or not, but I, it's kind of a bummer. No one, everyone was kind of interested in, everyone was navel gazing as the family was just trying to figure what, what yeah, the hell was going on. Right. Yeah. That's unfortunately what happens in these situations is that it's the, uh, you know, the family that suffers in these cases ultimately is, you know, Ed and Lorraine, they kind of swoop in and, you know, get their five five minutes of fame, and then like, all right, good to go. We See did it. on to the next one. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. Let's take we a all prop. this family has to deal with living in this town. The poor dad goes back to work, is harassed because it's it's sad. Honestly, it's a sad ending to this yeah. one because 
Yeah, they didn't. They never really could move on from this. It just kind of tainted their lives. It was their resolution. They they only sold that house for twenty thousand dollars because I think I saw one photo of the house after they had passed, and it looked like it was just derelict. I don't know because no one, their only daughter. I don't know what happened, but it sounded like maybe she just cut ties after a while. I don't know who was controlling their estate because it sat there for like a year or so. Uh, they only got 20,000 because I think it was being vandalized. So yeah, kind of just a family in turmoil that no one, uh, no one genuinely wanted to help. It seems maybe besides the, uh, what's his name? Beatty. But fortunately didn't seem like this one got solved. Yeah, you know? yeah. I like to see a movie made of this one. Yeah, like, true to the story. <laughs> it's it's so sad. Be a very different conjuring. <laughs> <laughs> they get booted out. Booted out. <laughs> you know, it'd be that's that's a movie I'd like to see. But we want to know your thoughts on this case and and the Warrens just in general. Of course, you guys are always very uh, very spicy when it comes to the Warrens <laughs> and your opinions and and thoughts on uh, how they conduct paranormal investigations. So. Uh, let us know if you're watching on YouTube in the comments or on social media if you're listening or watching elsewhere. If you are only listening to the episode, I do recommend going and taking a peek at it. I mean, it's pretty entertaining. We look great today. Just <laughs> just wonderful. I'm I'm about to like this mask. These masks are so uncomfortable. It's crazy. I feel like I'm Michael Keaton in the Batman <laughs> mask where it's like pursing my lips a little <laughs> yeah. bit. Oh man, gotta love Halloween. But have a safe and fun Halloween. And we will see you guys next week with another one. We oh, I'm excited for this next one. You know what? Screw it. I'll just tell you what we're doing for this next one. Yeah, why not? We are going to, I think actually we already said it in the last episode, pretty much, but we are going to dive into the apparent fraudulent scam that is Russ McCamey. And McCamey Manor. This is hot, hot right now. And just so people know, when we came out with the blackout episode, uh, we mentioned the stuff regarding McCamey Manor. The videos from Reckless Ben on YouTube, who's been kind of the the one really uh, spearheading this ex- exposing campaign against McCamey Manor, had come out uh, after. So we are. Uh, getting up to speed with what's going on with McCamey Manor and uh, looking forward to bringing that to you here next week. But that will be it for us today. Signing off, Ed Warren and my lovely wife, Lorraine. We'll see you next time. Lights out, everybody.